Ah, yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word line upon line. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 but as, as I like to do we'll just back up a little bit uh, to make sure that we get the the full context of what it is we're going to be studying here in chapter 5 again beginning in verse 1 as we have in our opening that God in at different times and in different ways spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets and so we understand that the fathers were a disaster God sent his word via angels, to the prophets, to our fathers, and uh, they were a disaster. And so now, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, because we, the Hebrews of the New Covenant, uh, we've heard these things directly from the Lord, not from angels, and not from prophets, but from the Lord himself. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received just punishment. So every single one was punished appropriately. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord himself, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? So this is something that becomes very clear to us that uh, we must be uh, very cognizant of who this word came to us by and, uh, and, and the onus that is upon us to be faithful to this great word of salvation which has come to us by the Lord himself. And then chapter 3, so that was chapter 1, chapter 2. Chapter 3 then opened up 
with therefore, holy brethren. He's speaking to the holy brethren, the brethren that have been called out, uh, that have been set apart for holy use. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So this is not for anybody. This is for those who are partakers of the heavenly calling. This, this calling is coming out of heaven from God himself. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider. This is something that he wants us to think about. He wants us to consider this. Think about this. Don't let this escape you. And what is it that we are to consider? He wants us to think about two things. One is, consider the apostle. And the second is, and high priest of our profession. So there are two things that we're asked to consider. One is that this is the apostle sent by God. And the other is, this is the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now that he is the apostle, the apostle Paul has helped us to consider this already. In fact, I would say the first four chapters of this book have been all about us considering the fact that Jesus is the one sent by God to deliver a message to us. So his superiority to the angels, his superiority to the prophets, his superiority to Moses, his superiority to Joshua, all of this is for our consideration as him as the apostle as the one sent. Now, beginning in the balance of chapter 4, the back half of chapter 4, the apostle is going to pivot. And for the next five chapters, he's going to help us consider the superiority of Christ's priesthood. So, so far we, we, we are, hopefully we get it, that he's a, the, a superior apostle. Now, I just want to go to a scripture in the Gospels that speaks about Christ as the apostle, just to put a bow on what we've heard in Hebrews, the first four chapters. He says here in Matthew chapter 21, that the husbandman, this is uh, someone who, who owns a vineyard, he's the husbandman, took his servants, uh, sorry, the, the husbandman took the Lord's servants, so the Lord has been sending servants, these are apostles, these are ones sent by God, and the husbandmen, the ones who are responsible for keeping the vineyard, that's, that, that was all their job was to do, is to look after the vineyard. So what, what did they do? They took his servants, these are people who've been sent by, by the God, and beat one and killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent, emphasis being on he sent, other servants, so more apostles are being sent, in, in the sense that apostles are one sent, Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. And this really captures what the apostle opens up with when he says, in times past, at sundry times and in various ways, God spoke unto our fathers. And again, I said that in previously that this sounds complimentary, but it's a condemnation. It's a condemnation. Because here's what happened when God sent his word via his prophets to our fathers. So he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent, again, this is, we're considering Christ as our apostle. Last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. 
But when the husbandmen, again, this is their, their, they don't own the vineyard, they are just husbandmen. When the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, so this is how they uh, conferred with each other, this is the heir. So they recognized him, they understood who he was. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. So rather than understand that he has come for to bless them and to, to have them share in the inheritance, they don't they, they believe that somehow he's threatening them and they don't want to give it up, give up the inheritance. Uh, they want to seize it. So let's kill him and seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. Then the question comes, when the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto those husbandmen? And that is the question. Now, that Christ is both our high priest and the apostle sent, when we were studying Revelation, and as John introduces Christ to us in Revelation, he actually does introduce him as both the apostle and the high priest of our profession. He says here, in Revelation 1 verse 5, Grace and, and, and peace be unto you, uh, from the Father, that is, he, he, him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, that's verse 4, and then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. So the apostles are sent with a testimony. They're sent to testify. They're sent with a witness. And Jesus Christ had a testimony, and he was faithful to the end no matter what opposition he faced. And this is what the Apostle Paul wants us to consider. Consider the Apostle, that is Jesus Christ, the opposition that he faced, and his faithfulness to the end. Consider that. So, grace and peace from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness that the one sent, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of kings of the earth. Now, notice this. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So right there in verse 5 of Revelation, we're introduced to Christ as, as, as both the faithful apostle and our high priest, the high priest of our profession. That, and this is, this is why the apostle Paul is going to spend so much time relative to the time that he spent asserting Christ's superiority as, a, as apostle, now he's going to spend a lot more time asserting his superiority as high priest. And it has everything to do with this, that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is our high priest. This is the level of care, the level of concern, the level of love and compassion that he has for us that he would come and shed his own blood and then wash us from our sins in that blood. This is what we have to consider. This is what we have to deeply reflect on. Who is it that we're dealing with? We're dealing with the faithful apostle and the high priest of our profession. Let's go back to Hebrews. So we, we covered Hebrews 4 last week, but just to get the context of it as we roll into chapter 5, he said, last week we, we read this, where he concluded uh, from this passage about the rest that, that's available to us, let us labor therefore. And we, what we said last week was, 
the Hebrews must not look for comfort. And by extension, speaking to us in this time when we package this with Hebrews, this is not a time to look for comfort. This is a time to understand that we are called to be witnesses. And we have as an example in Revelation, Jesus Christ as the faithful witness. We have as a, an example in Revelation, John, who introduces himself to us as him who bore witness to, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. So we have that in Revelation 1 verse 2. So we have this faithful witness in Christ and we have John following Christ's faithful example. And then even later on in chapter 1, when John says the reason why he's on the Isle of Patmos, the reason why he's been exiled to Patmos, is because of his faithfulness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he's calling then on the seven churches in Revelation, by extension the whole church, to be faithful. Just as he, he, calls, it, he calls himself uh, his, our, our brother and companion in tribulation. He's right there with us. He understands. Be faithful. Be faithful. So when, when the apostle here speaks of laboring, let us labor therefore. It is this, this, he's speaking to the Hebrews to say, face the persecution. Be faithful. Face it. And that's part of our labor. Therefore, to enter into that rest, don't turn back. Labor to enter into that rest. Lest any man fall after the same example, that's the example of the provocation in the wilderness, when they fell because of unbelief. There's the land, go into the land, they wouldn't go into the land. In fact, when uh, Joshua and Caleb said that the land is a beautiful land, and, and if God is pleased with us, he's going to give us this land. In fact, these giants are bread for us. What was the response of Israel? Stone them to death. We don't want to hear that. Stone them to death. So all Israel, the fathers, were this tremendous example of unbelief. And now the Hebrews in the first century are running the risk of following their father's example. And so the advice is labor. Don't turn back, go forward. Go forward and be faithful. Don't, don't fall in this manner of, of, or in the same manner of unbelief as the fathers did. For, why? Because the word of God is quick and powerful. The word of God is quick and powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So the word of God is a two-edged sword, but it's sharper than any man-made two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we cannot fool God. So the Hebrews are putting on this religiosity a play and they're saying, you know, we want to be at the temple and we believe, we still believe in God and, you know, it's the same God so we can go back to Judaism and, and he's saying, look, <laughs> you, you, we, we have to do business with Jesus Christ. We need to give an account to Jesus Christ. The, the passage we looked at last week said, you know, we have to deal with him with whom we have to do. Him with whom we have to give an account. And when the word of God examines us, this is the type of examination that we'll be faced with. There is no fooling God. We can fool men. We cannot fool God. And so ultimately, all of us have to come before the judgment seat of Christ and his word. And his word is going to examine us. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And this is exactly what we see 
in the epistles from Christ to the churches, where he makes it clear he searches the hearts. So he says here, uh, neither is there any creature that is not made naked and manifest, obvious in his sight, but all things are naked and opened to the eyes, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's, there's the passage that I was referring to from last week. So all things are naked and opened unto the eyes. And we see in Revelation, these are eyes like a flame of fire and a sharp two-edged sword. This is the examination that the church must go through. So we either face Christ or we face the world. And, and Caleb and Joshua said, the giants in the land, they're bred for us. And this is the same message today. The puppets of, of Satan, the servants of the devil, they are bred for us. As Christ himself says in the Gospels, the worst they can do is kill us. And after that, there's nothing more they can do. But there's more that Christ, that, that Christ can do. There's more that the Father can do. So let us fear God, not men. So all things are naked and open. They're going to be completely transparent in front of him. And this religious play that a lot of us are into, as the Hebrews were, not going to cut it with the Lord. Not going to cut it with the Lord. Seeing then, so this is now the, the introduction of the consideration of Christ as high priest. Up to now, the apostle has been helping us consider Christ as the apostle, the one sent, with a specific message to us that's superior to anybody else that's been sent. Now he's going to pivot, and he wants us to consider Christ as our high priest. Seeing then, that we have a great high priest. So this is the second consideration. We have a great high priest. So seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Oh, this is not just any high priest. This is a high priest that was on earth and has passed into the heavens. So not just the first heaven, but he's right up there with the throne of God. Seeing then, there's a conclusion he's coming to. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Because we have Jesus as our high priest, this is the conclusion. Let us hold fast our profession. This is not a time to let go. So many are letting go. Many feel that, okay, you know what, this is too hard. Let's turn back. He's saying, just hang in there. Just hang in there. Do not turn back. This is not a time to turn backward. This is a time to hold on. And why? Because we have a great high priest. So he says, consider the high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Seeing then that we have this, high, this great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. He is the high priest of our profession. Let us hold fast this profession, this profession that we've made. Now, he goes on to further explain why we can hold on, why we can face whatever it is we have to face and still be successful. Don't let go. Don't turn back. We have this high priest. For we have not, so we're going to hold on to the high priest of our profession because we have not a high priest, this is what he wants us to consider, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So the apostle sees very clearly the weakness 
or the weaknesses of the Hebrew brethren. And he's saying, turn to the high priest. He's for us. He shed his blood to wash us from our sins. He wants us to be successful. Turn to him. And you can turn to him in confidence because it's not just any high priest. This high priest can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's not going to look at us like, oh, I have no idea what you're going through. He, he knows exactly what we're going through. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So he was tempted just like us, yet without sin. And again, this is one of those scriptures that is repeated often. It's quoted often. We'll say it in our prayers. We'll say it to encourage one another. But in the context, we need to be careful about the text. It's not saying that every single temptation that we have ever faced, Jesus has faced every single temptation as well. And so he's, like us, he's been tempted with absolutely everything. Jesus was not tempted with absolutely everything. Jesus was tempted in all points as the Hebrews were at the time. How were the Hebrews being tempted? Well, it would be similar to today if we have any idea of what is happening in Sudan, in North Africa, in the Middle East, that there is tremendous persecution of Christians. They are suffering tremendously. And they are being forced, on pain of death, on pain of persecution, to renounce their faith. And yet they will not renounce their faith. And so it is this type of grief, which right now, you know, here we are in Western Canada, uh, or sorry, West, the Western world, Canada, America, the Western civilization, even Europe, uh, to some extent we can include, although that's uh, uh, collapsing very quickly. We are not yet facing the grief that the Hebrews were facing in the first century and that Christians are facing today in the Middle East and North Africa and beginning to face in parts of Europe, in the UK, and beginning to face even in, in North America, Australia, New Zealand, uh, these Western civilizations. It's coming. This is 2018. I'm speaking to brethren today in May 2018, but I'm also speaking into an archive. And, and who knows who's listening to this in the future and what you may be facing in the future. But it's the same message. We have a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted the way the Hebrew brethren were. That is, tempted with the weakness of facing persecution, facing crucifixion. Look at Matthew 26. He says, And when he went a little further, he fell on his face, praying, he prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So this is what the Hebrews have to face, this intense persecution, possibly even crucifixion. And, and they, they are terrified of what they have to face. And so they're thinking of turning back. And the apostle is saying, Hebrew brethren, Hebrew brothers, holy brethren, you have a high priest that understands your weakness. Because he was tempted in the same way 
to try to avoid this persecution. And so here we actually see it recorded for us in the Gospel account. O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of persecution, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he can be touched with our weakness because he went through it. And in the face of persecution, this is how we have to pray. That if this cup can pass from us, please, nobody voluntarily wants to face this sort of thing. Nevertheless, Christ tells us that the hairs on our head are numbered. And not a hair can fall from our head without him knowing about it, without him permitting it. And so there is a permission that the beast power is going to have to prevail over the saints. Just as this beast power in the first century had permission to prevail over the saints. And that turns to us for a testimony. That is our job, to be faithful witnesses, to be faithful testifiers of this truth in Christ. So he was touched by it. Look at again in verse 42 of Matthew 26. He went away again the second time and prayed saying, Oh my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. This is our high priest. So the Hebrews are facing this intense persecution and Paul is saying to them, call on the high priest. He knows exactly what you're going through. In all points of this weakness that we have as humans to face this sort of uh, tragic demise, he faced it. And he faced it faithfully. And now he sits as our high priest. And he understands the same way that he called out to the Father and the Father heard him, we can call out to our high priest and our high priest will hear us. Coming back to Hebrews. So he says there, because Christ understands the weakness of humans in facing persecution, in facing this kind of demise. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Again, a, a scripture that we will quote very often and quote it very often out of context. But in context, it's talking about facing persecution. And look, the devil hates Christ. He makes that very clear to us in John 16. The devil hates Christ. And he hates any of us who are grafted into his body. By extension, we are Christ. We have his Holy Spirit. And so the devil is the same devil. The same devil that through intense, vile hatred and viciousness and violence at Christ is throwing that vile hatred and viciousness and violence at the followers of Christ. And so this is just something, this is the context then, that when we have to face this sort of thing, to be mindful, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession. Let us therefore, in considering Christ as our high priest, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. The same way that Christ went to the Father's throne, we can come to his throne. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this was a great time of need for the Hebrew brethren in the first century. I, I'm speaking now into the future because here in the Western world we're pretty comfortable, but signs are all around us that this comfort is disappearing. And we need to be very, very convicted about what we believe. And so 
when this persecution comes upon Christians worldwide, and we know that this is the case, we, we've read it in Revelation, that's the time that we know we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. He, he, he's been through this. He knows this. And, so he, and he knows the weakness associated with it. Even though he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was still human. And so he understands. And so because we have this empathetic high priest, we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. And obtain this mercy and grace that we need, which he so uh, willingly will give to us. Now we come into chapter 5. So we can come boldly unto this throne. And here's the understanding now that consider Christ as our high priest. And we're going to see how superior he is to Aaron. For every high priest taken from among men, and that's the key now, that the high priest is taken from among men. He, he doesn't just parachute out of nowhere. He's taken from among men. He's ordained for men. So he's taken from men, and he's ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's, what, that's the function of the high priest. And we can actually see when Aaron was chosen as high priest, here in Exodus 28, and take you unto you, Aaron, speaking to Moses, take unto you, Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel. So, you know, you don't go to uh, the Arab nation. You don't go to the Indian nation. You don't go to the African nation. This servant must come from among the people of Israel to serve the people of Israel. So take you, Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. So they didn't, they didn't select themselves. They didn't say, oh, you know, Aaron didn't come to Moses and say, oh, Moses, you know, I'm your brother. Probably it's best if, what do, you, what do you think? You and I, I'm your brother. You can trust me. I'll be your high priest. No, this wasn't even in Aaron's mind. He was taken from among men and selected by God and put into this office of high priest with his sons. Coming back to Hebrews, this high priest that's taken from a man among men, so he's taken from among men so that he can serve men. He's taken from Israel so he can serve Israel, who can have compassion on the ignorant. By extension here, uh, the apostle is calling the Hebrews of the first century ignorant. They are fools. But the high priest can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. They think they're in the way by staying in Judaism. Uh, Paul is telling them, no, you're out of, you've, you've gone off course. But the high priest can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So this is why he's taken from among men, so that he can be compassionate as he serves in the office of high priest for men. And by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sins. So to offer four sins. So this is this is exactly what the high priest would have to do. He would have to, especially on the Day of Atonement, the most holy day for them, to go in and ask forgiveness for the people. He would, uh, the high priest, would also uh, sacrifice for sins for himself and for the people. So look here in Leviticus 16, 
Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And this is now the argument that we're going to see why Christ's high priesthood is superior to Aaron's. Because Aaron was a sinful man. And he had to offer first as high priest for himself, and then for the, 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 the house of Israel. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the people. So first he had to look after himself to become holy. Then he can look after the people to make them holy and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock. So first he does for himself, then he does it for the people to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat to bring the mercy of God on the people. So again, he, he highlights here in um, uh, Hebrews, continuing in Hebrews, no man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So nobody can just sort of say, you know, uh, I'm just going to go in a cave and just make things up and, and give myself honor, and you have to believe me. Nobody's there to back me up. No, there are no witnesses. I just, just off the top of my head, I want to have a, I want to have honor among men. Maybe I didn't have such a good upbringing. People were looking down on me, and now it's time for revenge and time for me to give honor to myself. No such thing. No such thing. This, this honor is not something we can, any man can give himself. But he that is called of God as was Aaron. So he's very clearly establishing just how special Aaron's priesthood was. But in doing this, he's going to show how inferior this priesthood is to Christ's. So now he introduces Christ. So also Christ glorified not himself. Christ did not glorify himself. At no time did Christ just say, you know, I want, I want this for myself. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He, he, he humbled himself, but God lifted him up. So in the same context as the priesthood, Aaron didn't choose it for himself. God selected him and gave him that honor, and it was a tremendous honor. And in the same way now, this priesthood, this high priesthood, uh, is something that God gave to Christ. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he, that is God, that said unto him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this is the honor that, that God gave to Christ. And it, it, Christ didn't give it to himself. So notice this though. It's very interesting here. In Hebrews 5.5, 5, he's quoting from the Psalms. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, You are my son. Today... I have begotten you. This comes from Psalm 2. So let's just read the context here of Psalm 2. Where Notice this in Psalm 2, verse 6. He says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He doesn't say my priest. Because here in Psalm, uh, sorry, Hebrews 5, he says Christ didn't glorify himself to be made a high priest. But God said unto him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he quotes this passage from the psalm too, that today I have begotten you, you're my son, as a justification or explanation for Christ being chosen by God to become a high priest. Yet when we go to Psalm 2, it says I have set you, yet have I set my king. It doesn't say 
my priest, my high priest. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So he's the king upon the holy hill. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, You are my son. This day have I begotten thee. So this is the quote that the apostle is quoting. Yet when we look at the context, it's not that you're my son and I've begotten you and you're high priest. It's you're my son, I've begotten you, you are king. Further, it goes on to say, Ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. So this should be very encouraging, that the heathen, who are railing against the Hebrews, who are persecuting the Hebrews, need to understand that God is going to give the uttermost parts of the earth, and all the heathen, to this king. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. So this is about kingship, not about priesthood. Even though the context, uh, sorry, the quote in Hebrews 5 is about the high priesthood. Yet when we're looking at the context of Psalm 2, it's about the kingship. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. And that's our message as part of our testimony. This is our message to evil men. Be wise. <laughs> yeah. This is, we're dealing with the Son of God himself. And he is king. And all the uttermost parts of the earth will be given to him for his possession. So let's come back to Hebrews 5 now. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest doesn't say king, it says high priest. But he, that's God, that said unto him, You are my son, today have I begotten thee. Now he goes to verse 6, as he says also in another place. So now he's coupling it with another psalm. This is going to be Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's now establishing the superiority of Christ's priesthood over Aaron's. That you are my son, Today I have begotten thee. And when we look into the psalm, it's all about his kingship. Now he goes on to say, well, and he also says in this other place, that is in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. This is a forever priesthood, but this is not after the Aaronic order. This is after the Melchizedekian order. And what we know from the Melchizedekian order is that Melchizedek was not just a high priest, he was also a king. He was the king of Salem. So this order of priesthood involves kingship, not just priesthood. So this Melchizedekian priest is a king and a priest. And so he's quoting here Psalm 110. And if we just uh, read the psalm here, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. So the king in Psalm 2 is in Zion. Now the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion rule you in the midst of your enemies. This again is context. The king, the priest, the king, the Melchizedekian priest, shall rule according to the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest and a king. And as a king, he will crush his enemies. Bring all those who said that they would not have me rule over them and slay them before me. This is the Melchizedekian order. It does not tolerate any opposition. 
because it's going to be a worldwide order. So he says, rule you, this, this priest. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion in the midst of, in the midst, rule you in the midst of your enemies. This is how powerful he is. Your people, and this is the high priest the Hebrews are being told to go to, the one that's going to crush all his enemies. So yeah, we have enemies. Uh, Christ has enemies. And, and they, they don't hate us personally. They hate us because we follow Christ. But Christ is going to crush his enemies. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn, he's sworn this, the Lord has sworn, and he's not going to change his mind. There's no abrogation here. There's no change. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever. So the high priest was a high priest for his lifetime. But this order of priest is forever. After the order of Melchizedek. So this Melchizedekian order involves priesthood and kingship and eternity. Priesthood, kingship, eternity. And the crushing of all enemies. The Lord at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. And we have read much of this in the book of Revelation. But here in the book of Revelation, again, the, the high priesthood. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, when John heard the voice and turned to see the voice that spoke with him, one like unto the Son of Man. Notice at this time, he's not clothed in the purple and the, the, the garments. He's clothed in white, clothed down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. I shouldn't say white. It doesn't necessarily say that. But it's, it's the high priesthood garment that he's wearing down to the foot. I, I say white just because of the sacrifices. Uh, but it, not necessarily. But just says garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So he certainly is in, in this uh, high priesthood um, uh, garment and, and, and it down to the feet. And then there's something around the waist, which is golden. And notice this then, that he is after the Melchizedekian order, which means he's a king and a priest, and has made us kings and priests. So the Melchizedekian order, it's a priesthood, but it's a very special type of priesthood in that it involves kingship, it involves priesthood, and it involves eternity. And Christ has washed us in his blood to make us kings, as our high priest, to make us kings and priests forever. So we are coming into this Melchizedekian order. It's no longer the Aaronic order. He's made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And again, mindful of Philippians, that uh, Christ did not bring this honor upon himself. But being in the form of God, did not think it robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't something he tried to hold on to, but made himself of no reputation. He didn't come saying, hey, honor me. I'm special. I'm a holy prophet. I'm an apostle. I'm, I'm the, the, the last person. No one else after me. I'm just so, I'm the first and the last. I'm so special. Bow down. And he didn't do any of that. He came and he just completely humbled himself made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. That's necessary because the high priest must be taken from among men in order to minister to them. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is the high priest we have to consider. Therefore, God has 
highly exalted him. So this order of the Melchizedekian order, this is high exaltation. A king and a priest forever. God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And this is reality. We can't apologize for this. This is reality. And whether people face it now or later, they have to face it. Whether they bow now or later, they have to bow. Every knee will bow at Christ, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Back to Hebrews 5. Who in the days of his flesh, so he has to be taken from among men, so this is why he came and became a man, became an Israelite. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears. So in all points, he was tempted like the Hebrews of the first century. And so that's why they can appeal to him because he's been through it. So in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying, uh, prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and we know from Revelation that Christ now has the keys to Hades and to death. So he can save us from death, just as the Father resurrected him. He now has the keys to death. He cried unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He was heard in that he feared. And that's the appeal that the Apostle is making to the Hebrews and to us by extension. Fear. fear. It's, it's a healthy thing to fear God. And he feared God, and so he faced the death that he had to face so that he could be obedient to the Father. And so here we see uh, this strong crying. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. This was serious. He cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people say, oh, he's, God forsook him. No, God didn't forsake him. He was actually telling his brethren to go to Psalm 22. So they would know he's quoting the psalm. And so they would immediately go to the psalm and look at the context of the psalm to understand what it is he fulfilled. So Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. Read the rest of the psalm. Because that's what they would have gone. They would have known. In fact, they wouldn't even have to turn to the scripture. Many of them would have it memorized. But Christ is pointing them to that psalm so that they can understand what has been fulfilled before their eyes and who he was and who he is. Back to Hebrews. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So that's the message to us, let, uh, to the Hebrews and us by extension. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest any of you should seem to come short of it. Please let us not be complacent. Let us not be overconfident. Let us not think, you know, oh, I have the Holy Spirit. It's all sewn up. I have nothing to do here. The scripture is telling us, let us fear. Let us be zealous. Let us be careful not to neglect this great word of God. Let us apply ourselves because there's a test right around the corner. The same test that the Hebrews had to face in the first century we will have to face in the 21st century. And so the same lessons that apply to them apply to us. The same lessons that apply to the fathers with Moses apply to the Hebrews of the 1st century, apply to the Hebrews of the 21st century. Let us therefore fear, 
lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of us, any of us, now there's no special here, any of us should seem to come short of it. Verse 8 in Hebrews 5. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So there's a, there's a learning that he developed about obedience that he's now requiring from us that he fully understands because he learned by the things which he suffered. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours. And there was a learning that was taking place in that suffering. And now he sits as our high priest, having learned obedience and now requiring it from us. In Luke 22, verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was it were was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground he was learning obedience through the things that he suffered and verse 9 of hebrews 5 then being made perfect he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him so he came to earth and he was obedient. And he faced this tremendous persecution and, and the weakness of human flesh, but the strength of the Spirit and the commitment to obey the Father to the end. And in going through all of that as a human being, he, he learned. And now he sits as our high priest, being made perfect. And it's not that he wasn't perfect. This word, uh, teleo, means to be made complete. So he's going to function now in this role as, as high priest, but he's been made complete by coming as a human being, being taken from among men so that he can minister to men. And we can understand that we can go to hit the throne boldly because we understand he was a man. And he was tempted in all points the same way we are, faced the same human weakness the way we do. He has been made complete. And so he's been made perfect. And in, in being made complete, he became the author of eternal salvation. This, this Melchizedekian order is an eternal order. And he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He obeyed the Father. He cried out to the Father for strength, knowing that the Father could save him. He now expects us to obey him. He's seated on his throne. We call out to him as our high priest, knowing he's able to save us, and we obey him. That's what Revelation is all about. That blessed is he that reads, and they who hear, and the context is, keep reading, keep hearing the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written therein. So we have to keep, the, keep it, be faithful to the end, like John, like Christ. And so... If we obey him, that is, remain faithful, he is, our, he is the author of this eternal life, eternal salvation. Now, this becoming perfect in the Gospel of John. After this, Jesus, knowing this is about this, this process of completion, he has to go through this complete process in order to be taken from among men and to be our high priest. And after this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, the process is complete that the scripture might be fulfilled, says, I thirst. So he is following to a T the scriptures so that he can be the perfect high priest for us. 
Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on his, upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. So he was made complete in the sense that he fulfilled all the scriptures and he crossed the finish line and became the perfect high priest. Complete, com completely fulfilled the scriptures. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And so he was obedient right to death so that he could be the perfect Israelite and be the perfect high priest, fulfill all the conditions, terms and conditions of the covenant and be the representative for Israel so that now we can inherit the promises made to Israel because Israel, a faithful Israelite has fulfilled the terms and conditions. Back to Hebrews 5. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is a higher level order. This is an eternal order. This is a kingly order. This is the order of the high priest of Melchizedek. And we will go into the Old Testament, Genesis, and in the Psalms, uh, what it means to be of the order of Melchizedek. But I'm going to save that for chapter 7, when the Apostle goes into more detail about the Melchizedekian order. Called a, a, of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we do understand that this order, it's a forever order. It is, it is not, it's not at the level of the Aaronic the Aaronic high priest. This is a completely different order altogether. So he says here, called a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now in explaining that he's of a different order, he says this, of whom, that is Melchizedek, we have many things to say. There's a, there's a lot to be said here. There's like Paul is just full of content around talking about Melchizedek and the Melchizedekian order of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. So this is quite a scathing rebuke of these people who think they're very religious. And Paul's assessment of them is, you've grown dull. I'm trying to think, there's so much I need to build upon and really lay out the case for Melchizedek and what this all means. Where do I start? Where do I start with you? You're, you're dull of hearing. Things go in one ear and out the other. And so there's a lot to say here, but it's going to be very difficult because they've become dull of hearing. Now, listen to the scathing rebuke of these Hebrews, these religious people. For when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God. So you should be teachers now. I should be able to call on you and leverage your time in the Word in order to extend myself and, and reach out to many others, especially the Gentiles who are coming into the faith, uh, we should be able to lean on you to strengthen, to edify, to encourage them. And now I come and I see your condition. You've grown dull of hearing. You ought to be teachers. You should have graduated. Now you should become professors. And you know what? I realize something tragic has gone wrong. We need to go all the way back to first grade.
and just go back to the foundation and and teach you again you heard the foundation but you didn't understand it because if you understood it you would never reject Jesus Christ and here we have a condition now where you we thought you understood the foundation we were using the same language whenever we talked about the foundation you could hold your own we could have a conversation about the foundation but it becomes obvious now that you didn't understand it and and rather than be able to call on you to teach those younger in the faith and give you more advanced studies let's go on to the really higher level studies while you teach those who are younger in the faith it's like you're a babe I forget teaching you the advanced things we need to go back to grade one and go back over the foundation because you clearly missed the point you have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God so and, and this is let's let's go back to the beginning and you've become such as have need of milk and not strong meat so those that have need of milk he's basically saying you know what you've become like a baby and and babies are really really cute who doesn't love a cute baby but there's a point when the cuteness wears off you know i know when when um when we when our children were babies uh you know they were very cute babies lovely babies but when you take them out to the the playground or you just meet up with other parents maybe there's some sort of social outing you can't help but kind of compare oh your baby's walking and it's only 10 months old and my baby's 11 months old and it's still crawling is that is something wrong and you find no no babies are different they mature at different rates uh, somewhere around one year most babies are walking some might be 13 months so it's okay but if, if they're two years old and they can't walk at some point we cross over where it's a problem if they if they are still having milk and they're five years old something's wrong they should be onto solid food years ago and so there is a condition and many people may not be aware of this but there is a condition and this unfortunate uh, girl uh, had this uh, and she's not the only one there's actual term for this condition where there are babies who just don't grow old they stay babies it's a terrible terrible thing and so it's a beautiful cute baby but there comes a point when you start to wonder is this baby going to mature is this baby going to get older and uh you know again who doesn't love a cute baby but there comes a point where you need to mature there's there's a stage of cuteness and babiness and that's great and there's nothing wrong with being a babe we rejoice over babes in Christ but if 10 years later we're still babes in Christ 20 30 years later we're still babes in Christ then there's a concern and so here he says you 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 have become so you've regressed such as have need of milk you've become like a baby and not of strong meat I have strong meat I, I want to get into this Melchizedekian order I want you to understand the fullness of Melchizedek. This is a, an advanced concept. You know, most people hear about Christianity. They don't know anything about Melchizedek. And again, this uh, ideology of Islam is spreading all over the world, and the Western world just loves it. We're spreading all over. Muhammad didn't understand anything 
about Melchizedek because he learned Christianity through the ears, going to the market, hearing from other people. And this is a very advanced concept. And people didn't speak about this. This is advanced. And so Islam has no understanding of the Melchizedekian order. And most Christians, and this is why, if you're going to just listen to Christians, you ask, hey, stop a Christian. You know, oh, you're a Christian. Tell me about Melchizedek. Who? I have no idea. And why is the Melchizedekian order so important? That I have no clue. This is, this is strong meat. So you become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So I want to give you strong meat, but you don't need strong meat. You need milk. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. So he's, what he's observing of the Hebrews of the first century is that they were not skilled in the, word, in the application of the word. So they had sort of a concept, academic concepts, to do with the foundation. But they weren't skilled. And there's a point where the word has to live in us. And Christ learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He applied the word of God. And that's how he learned. And so we have to obey, we have to apply the word of God. And there's a skill that we develop as we apply the word of God. And if we're not doing this, this is how we remain babies. We have to be thrown into circumstances and search the Word of God and say, how am I, what's expected of me in this situation? What does the Word of God dictate? Somehow, the Hebrews came to this conclusion that turning their back on Jesus Christ in the face of persecution and going back to Judaism, that somehow that would be okay. And Paul is saying, this is a most heinous evil. What you're doing is, is ridiculously evil and obviously evil, and yet you think it's okay. And so you've become unskilled in the word of righteousness and you're a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. So how do we become of full age as Christians? Even those who by reason of use... So the word of God is not something we read. It's something we use. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So, so this is something that there's the word of God to study academically. And then there's the word of God which we actually use and live by. And there's a learning that takes place as we use and live by it. Our senses are exercised. We develop good judgment. And had they, had they have done this, they would never entertain for a moment that it would be acceptable to God that they turn their back on Jesus Christ. So next week we'll get into chapter 6, but just to close the thought here. So because of all of this, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. So these are the first principles. He's saying, you need to leave that. You can't stay a baby. You can't be 30 years old and still drinking milk. You can't be 30 years old and you can't walk. You can't be 30 years old and it's just goo goo gaga, you don't know how to talk. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, the same way that Christ went on unto completion, unto maturity, so that he could be that complete high priest. Let us search the scriptures, 
and fulfill the word of God, as Christ did, and go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And we'll get into what all of that means next week, but in a nutshell, don't go back to Judaism. That that is just, you're, re, you're, you're retarding yourself. You're, you're, you're reversing the growth process, and you're going backwards. Let's go forwards, and let's do that understanding, considering the apostle, but also deeply consider the high priest of our profession, which is Jesus Christ the Lord. He's so holy. He's so this, this This is beauty. This is a man that if we follow him, we become beautiful. He, he shapes, he changes us from the inside out. So let us hold on to our profession and understand that we can come boldly to this high priest who was in all points tempted as we are, as we will be. Again, in 2018, here in Canada, West, the Western world, it's okay. It's pretty good. Pretty good if you're a Christian. It's not going to be this way, ongoingly. And so we need to be encouraged by what we see here in the first century with the Hebrews. And we need to hold on to this vision of Jesus Christ as our high priest. And a high priest of the Melchizedekian order, we look to him as the coming king. King of kings, Lord of lords. Mm -hmm.